Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle. My co-host is Rachel Santizo. Hello. And our very special guest today is Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. We're going to get to you in a minute, Sim. I just want to uh, let, let people know we're one of the most watched and listened to podcasts dealing with addiction and recovery. And you can you can watch us or listen to us on YouTube or iTunes or iHeart or any of those things. And we have a new member of the family, KKAT, 860 AM radio in Salt Lake City. So even though we have people watching and listening around the world, if you live in Salt Lake, Saturday and Sunday morning at 10 AM, you can catch this podcast. So, Great. Thank you. So, so welcome to all our KCAT listeners. Welcome to you, Sim. Thank you very much for being here. Let's start out with, uh, it, and we deal with this all the time at Odyssey House, and you deal with it all the time. How would you assess how the criminal justice system deals with people in addiction or with mental health issues? Well, I think our, you know, over the last 28 years, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. <laughs> it's absolutely my privilege and pleasure to be here. Uh, over the last 28 years as a public prosecutor, I've developed a hypothesis. And my hypothesis is when public policymakers fail to address the issue of social justice, economic justice, political justice, public health, education, job, and affordability, those public policy deficits manifest themselves as crisis in our community. And then our public policymakers have relied upon our criminal justice system and law enforcement to be our crisis managers. So they say to you, we've got this issue out here, but you take care of Th it. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And then in the application of that crisis management over our history has disproportionately impacted communities of color and poverty. And I used to say by accident, but I say by design because it is too efficient, too effective uh, uh, of a, a model. And so as a result, the light bulb that went off in my head was when I was a line prosecutor and I just convicted somebody when I was just first starting out. Now we're at the sentencing phase of it. And I'm trying to figure out where am I going to keep this person? Where is he going to uh, shelter? Uh, how am I going to feed this person? How, where am I going to get the uh, physical health needs of this person met? How am I going to address the mental health and the, uh, 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 and the addiction issues of this person? How am I going to stabilize them long enough so they can actually get a skill so they can earn a living mm -hmm. and support their family? And, and we have not yet even touched upon the trauma and everything that led that person to that moment. And every one of those things that I'm identifying, and there were mo far more uh, than that, were of all public policy deficits that were upstream, that were not met, and that uh, did not exist. And as a result, I'm the crisis manager for those failed <laughs> yeah. policies. And, uh, and, yeah. and so you take the you take the criticism when it doesn't work, whatever they determined you need to yeah. do, and the credit, I guess, when it does work. But. Yeah. And, and let's be clear, right? There's a fund, everybody intuitively understands the difference between violence and somebody who is a risk to the public safety of you or Rachel or me and our family versus those individuals whose conduct and existence we have criminalized and we dislike. So it's not about disliking someone or othering somebody 
uh, it's about, for me, criminal justice should be about that violence. It should be focused on the public safety component. But historically, it has become a management of poverty, mental illness, uh, addiction, and these other traumas that are uh, incorporated in that existence that we as a society do not want to take responsibility for, but we also don't want to see it. So we want to criminalize that behavior and we want to lock you away rather than deal with you. And that's something that I'm not interested in participating in. If you're a violent offender, yes, everybody else, we need to take a different approach. And that's why I'm a huge supporter of restorative justice principles and therapeutic justice models as an avenue of returning dignity and humanity back to those individuals who simply have become numbers moving through a system for us. Which all sounds ideal, right? You would agree with everything he said, Rachel, yeah, right? absolutely. But how do we do that? Because we're not, I mean, we've made some inroads with drug courts and mental health courts mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But we still have this huge issue to deal with that doesn't seem to be happening right now. I think we have to, first of all, uh, recognize that the politicians that we elect, the policymakers that we elect, they fundamentally work for us. We do not work for them. The second thing that we have to do is that we have to start having very honest conversations about these issues because this is not something uh, out of sight, out of mind kind of an approach. And we need to start relying on science and data and evidence-based approaches rather than emotional and knee-jerk responses. Again, public safety, and that let's, let's put that to the side, but everything else. What's fascinating about the American criminal justice system and policy, you look at like Norwegian and uh, uh, countries and uh, Norway, Sweden, their policymakers look to the subject matter experts to bring the research and inform them so they can actually create good laws that are supportive of that scientific evidence. Here, we go from an emotional component and deny the presence of anybody who's got scientific or uh, subject matter expertise, and we create laws differently. And as yeah. a result, ours is an emotional response to our issues rather than a scientific and thoughtful response to that. The other part of it is, under our current system, we cannot sustain the trajectory of mass incarceration. Uh, we, uh, uh, we spend billions of dollars, and there was an exponential growth from the mid-70s to the 80s when the war on drugs began. Mm -hmm. And we went from spending about six or seven billion dollars as a nation, uh, 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 two decades later, in excess of 70 to 80 billion dollars. Wow. Uh, and now uh, there's a research that came out that says, all the collateral impact of that uh, of that uh, approach is almost in excess of $200 billion a year. Ooh. So we cannot jail our way out of it. We cannot afford our way out of it. And so we need to come up with a better uh, approach. Of, even if you don't care about human beings, but you want to make a fiscal argument, <laughs> there, there it is. But there's which a human, is sometimes easier to yeah, make. Yeah. And there's a human argument to be made here as well, which Absolutely. is getting lost in this uh, conversation. Yeah, I, I love and appreciate everything that you're saying. I also think with the scientific and evidence-based, I think something that is lacking is lived experience. Yes. It's bringing in that lived experience to be able to say, um, to really be that boots on the ground and to paint what it's like and what the barriers are and how to get through it because it's a cycle that's created. And then there's more barriers. There's criminal records. You can't get a job. You can't get employment. Yeah. And so it's not the violence factor. It's that it's all that you know 
and it becomes this cycle because all the odds are against you. Yeah, absolutely. It's because what what we have done by othering that person, uh, we have dehumanized them. We do not look at the dignity and the individuality of that person. That person ceases to be a person. They become a statistic. They become a conduct, yep. right? And then we have this idea that this one idea of justice is that you're getting your just dessert. You deserve this as a yeah. result. And not recognizing what you just said, Rachel, which is that there are also institutional barriers that are there. So now if you end up with a record, uh, right, the whole yeah. idea of our criminal justice system is premised on the idea of rehabilitation. That means that if you do something wrong, you're held accountable, you pay your debt to society, as we say, but then you are welcome back into that society's mm -hmm. embrace, right? Because you have the same standing as me. But what we've done is we put the scarlet letter around you uh, and, the, and your criminal record is this scarlet letter for public shaming. And then as a result, you can't get a job. You can't feed yourself. You can't play, find a place mm -hmm. to live. And as a direct consequence of this othering, your children and dependent also economically suffer from that. So now we have created an a, a intergenerational mm -hmm. um, uh, cascading effect yeah. of that punishment. So this punishment goes from the sins of the fathers to their children and their grandchildren. And, uh, and we think that's okay, but we, we don't, we, we're not consciously aware of that. And then all the collateral cost to that is picked up by all of us. Mm -hmm. So we not only are doubling down on a bad premise, but then we're also backing it up with our own hard resources in a failed approach, in a failed system. So what would be the perfect, if you ran the world, okay, <laughs> what would be the perfect way to deal with issues like drug addiction or mental health and, and, and the peripheral crimes that go, go with them, like shoplifting and, and, and identity theft and things like that that people do to support their habit? What would be ideal? Well, I think, first of all, it, uh, it, uh, it's about building resiliency from the get-go. It means that when we have families that their basic needs are being met, they have access to medical care, they have access to good education, they have access to food. Uh, and mm -hmm. so what is our responsibility? So people say, well, you're giving free stuff away. No, I, I'm saying we're investing in our community. We're investing in our society. That's what you do in a civilized society. You invest in it. It's a constant effort. It's a loop that feeds upon itself. So it's those early childhood in interventions. It's about making sure that people can have access to jobs. They can have access to the skills and education so they can actually work for themselves. That if there is trauma that occurs, and no family is perfect, if there is trauma that occurs, we have mechanisms by which to address that trauma because leaving that trauma unresolved uh, downstream is going to cost us $25, $30 on a $1 investment that we could have made earlier on the system. Mm -hmm. So it's about thinking about our policy in a holistic way in the service of our community. That's the promise of American democracy and government is that we come together to address the needs of us collectively without compromising our individuality. And that means there is a moral and ethical responsibility to every elected to think collectively and holistically rather along 
party lines, rather along political lines, rather along expediency, rather along lobbyist groups with special interests. So it is this holistic approach. My background's in philosophy, so I like systems approach. And we are interconnected to each other. Mm -hmm. I'm interconnected to two of you. And if I sat and spent long enough time, I would see that connection with you. But what we have done is we've created this artificial reality where we say that we are no longer connected to each other. Therefore, we don't we can absolve of ourselves of our collective responsibility to each other by virtue of our human agency. And that's easily done when I demonize your conduct. It is easily done when I other you. It is easily done when I define your character by the mistakes that you have made. And therefore, I import a moral judgment upon you for what is a mistake that may have happened that all of us are capable of committing. But too often, I mean, like like Rachel was homeless down, yeah. down around the block. Uh, and and too too often a lot of the people and and now she's doing wonderful things. Yeah. Okay, prime example of what can happen if you take part in in treatment centers and things like that. But some of the people that we deal with and the people who then influence the legislators who then pass the screwed up laws that you have to enforce say Rachel's a heroin addict. She chose yeah. to be a heroin addict. She doesn't deserve to be treated the same way. Somebody else deserves to be treated. Well, and, that's, yeah. and that's a prevalent view it, in society. It and it's also a misunderstanding of what addiction is, mm -hmm. right? And what the science of addiction is. Um, at least my experience uh, has been that a heroin addict does not sit there and says, let me see what crimes I can go and commit <laughs> this morning. They say, I have a need. I am addicted. Mm -hmm. How do I feed that? Because the consequences of not feeding that addiction is uh, devastating. So it becomes this almost biological necessity, mm -hmm. this emotional necessity, which is perpetuated by that addiction. And the addiction drives you. Uh, it, 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 it is not a rational thinking model. It is that it is the expediency and the urgency of the addiction driving mm -hmm. everything. From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you are driven by that addiction. And your relationship, your conduct, your choices are dictated by that. And that's why we call it a disease. It's a physical, mental, uh, emotional kind of uh, a screwed up thing that happens. We can unravel it. We can build that resiliency. We can support that recovery if you understand what it is. But that means it requires effort. It requires that I see Rachel as a person mm -hmm. and that she has value and worth and dignity as a person. And that means that that is not the that is not the politically expedient thing to do no, or, popular. Uh, or popular thing to yeah. do. But uh, but I think with education and I think this next generation that's coming up, we're seeing the science. There is a greater capacity for compassion and properly and proportionately putting uh, the emphasis on what that is. So early on, if you look at some mechanisms of support that, uh, let me put it this way. If you have lung disease, we don't imprison you. <laughs> but, but if you have the addiction, if the, you have the disease of addiction, we want to imprison you, mm -hmm. right? And if you have a epileptic seizure and something happens from that, which can hurt somebody, we don't criminalize that, right? Mm -hmm. Right? I'm using that as an illustrative example that uh, that we need to shift our paradigm. And for policymakers, 
okay, but beyond appealing to their uh, compassion, we can appeal to their fiscal responsibility. This is a, the current model on the trajectory that it's at is not sustainable financially, apart from the human cost that it, it exacts, right? So, so if you want a better outcome, so take, for example, mental health issue. A person who's mentally ill going to the criminal justice system has a 72 to 74% recidivism rate if that issue is not addressed. But if I can, when I helped create the very first mental health court in the state of Utah almost 22 years ago, we said, what if we can get the medication to them? What if we can uh, give them supportive services? We can reduce that recidivism rate from 74, 75% down to about 19 and 22%. Wow. And, and that's a huge yeah. difference. And it, absolutely. And, uh, and uh, we know that some, uh, somebody who's mentally ill, who's intersecting with the criminal justice system, they're going to have a major crisis event when we looked at it was every like 200 days, a major crisis event where there's going to be a disruption in the community. By stabilizing them, I'm not, uh, I'm not curing mental illness, but I am maintaining it. I can extend that major crisis event from about 200 days to about 1,100 days. Wow. Okay. Those 900 days that are there are, uh, are not costing the taxpayer any money, right? But those multiple repeated re uh, crisis events are costing the taxpayer a lot of money. Yeah. So there's ways that we can look at it in a rational way where we can come up with some pragmatic solutions. Again, let me emphasize, without compromising public safety. Right, and that's yeah. that's the key. And let, you know, let's switch gears for a minute. Uh, it, because you, legislators pass laws and you're tasked with enforcing them. Would you advocate uh, eliminating all drug laws or, I mean, how... How do we deal with the drug situation? And people are talking about safe injection sites, uh, you know, a whole liberalizing the laws as, as they deal with drugs. Do you advocate uh, for that? Uh, what I advocate is a common sense approach, a evidence-based scientific approach to the nature, which are public health issues. What I advocate is not the criminalization of public health issues and all the collateral issues that are tied to that. What I advocate is early intervention and community support uh, because many of those issues can be addressed, okay? And so I guess the analogy that I use is sort of like this. Right now and historically, we take 10 addicts and we, and we made them all 10 criminals. And, but if we have different phased in levels of interventions, you may end up still with one addict who insists on not taking help and still insists on that behavior. But at the end of the equation, with each different filter or pathway of intervention, the criminal justice system may end up with one or two rather than 10 people right now. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. But then we'll know why we're ending up there with those two rather than blindly ending up with all 10 there right now. And that's a win-win for all of us. So should we legalize drugs or not? Well, I think we should certainly decriminalize okay. them. And because I think we as a society have to evolve through it. And, we, and, and I think we have to acknowledge that there are collateral 
conduct that does disrupt and can harm people. So you have to have a remedy by which to be able to address that part of it, but you want to do it proportionately uh, to that conduct rather than disproportionately. So we as a society have not yet evolved on that. We have not built the infrastructure of early interventions mm -hmm. where we can achieve that. So to propose that uh, as uh, uh, at the back end is still a huge sociological shift that we are not yet prepared to address and, and to internalize as a community of citizens. So I think this has to be done in stages by building the resiliency of the model early in the system, mm -hmm. and then you build back into it. And the natural impact of what that will be, the decriminalization of that. And it will shift ultimately to, to the public health sector that where it belongs. I think one of the most powerful things that you said is that 900 days. Yeah. Because thinking about those 900 days, I know that it extends time. But within those 900 days, that person gets to feel loved, supported, yes. which is something that a lot of us have never felt in our life. We get to learn. We've known what we've known until that point that someone says, hey, I see you and here's a chance. Yeah. And then it's like changing that behavior around yeah. and changing all the internal thinking that we've had because when it's a moral issue, there's nothing that any of you can tell me that I'm not telling myself right. daily. You're just enhancing what I already feel. Right. And so that 900 days really stuck with me. I yeah. love that part. And he brought up a point. <laughs> when you were in the throes of your addiction, did yeah. you wake up every morning saying, what kind of crime am I going to commit? Or did you wake up saying, how am I going to get my next fix how of heroin? How am I going to get it? And I also wasn't 12 years old saying, hey, I want to grow up to be a heroin addict either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, in addition. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, yeah. And, and, and each one of us as human beings have complex lives. Mm -hmm. Each one of us as human beings undergo uh, sometimes unfairly uh, levels of trauma uh, that impact us. And we need resolution and mm -hmm. support for that. And it has this snowballing effect that moves into the choices mm -hmm. that we make. People think that sometimes that we live in this perfect world where I have this menu option of rational choices <laughs> and yeah. that I get to pick and choose from. But we all know intuitively and through our experience, we are shaped by our experience. We're mm -hmm. shaped by uh, uh, our early life and and it does impact and, and our choices are already preordained to some extent uh, of how I'm predisposed to address that issue. Mm -hmm. There was a fascinating study that was done a few years ago that, and here's what everybody, all the uh, viewers and uh, listeners will understand. It doesn't take a huge rational leap to understand if a child is physically abused, sexually abused, verbally abused, and, and undergo through that kind of mistreatment and torture, that they're going to end up messed up when they grow up and they're going to make poor choices as a result of it. And they're more likely criminogenically to engage in what we would call engage in deviant behavior. Mm -hmm. But the same study also found that beyond child abuse, which everybody understands, that child neglect is a co-equal, co-contribute to the mm -hmm. subsequent criminogenic uh, mm -hmm. outcome. That means failure to thrive, failure to feel loved, failure to have shelter, uh, to have those other elements which we take for granted mm -hmm. in a home that is already shaping us into the choices we will be making. So the failure to thrive is a co-equal, co-contributor to subsequent mm -hmm. criminality. So that is those policy universe that I'm talking about. I can't tell you how many of our clients nowadays say my parents were 
either drug addicts or drug dealers. Yeah. And that's how they grew up. Yeah. We only have a little bit of time left. Do you have faith in the future? What do you, do you mm -hmm. think you're, you're talking about sociological changes that are going to improve things? Do you think it'll happen? I have faith in people, Randall. That, that's what I have faith in people. I believe that when you see the dignity of the person before you and you engage in a respectful interaction with that person, anything is possible. I have faith in the community of our citizens who, uh, who recognize that we cannot continue to do this in the same way. Uh, so I have a faith in the power of people uh, to want to have different outcomes and to exercise their franchise uh, to their elected and policymakers saying, we want and we deserve and we demand something different. Uh, we want you to be engaged and we're not gonna let you be unaccountable. So I have never lost my faith in humanity. I have never lost my faith in the person sitting next to me. What I do recognize is that it's very easy for me to demonize. I have to acknowledge that in my own self as my own bias and predisposition, that I can be influenced to demonize somebody. Mm -hmm. And I have to constantly work on that. But if I can sit down with somebody and we just see each other as people and start to talk to each other, it's not about forgetting the wrong they may have done if they've done violence. What, what I'm saying is that not everything is defined by that lens. Mm -hmm. And and what we have lost is our humanity because we've allowed and we've abdicated our responsibility to let others define how I should re relate to Rachel and mm -hmm. others to define how I mm -hmm. should perceive Rachel sure. rather than taking yeah. the time myself to interact with Rachel. I agree with that. What would be because um, we we're, 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 we only have about thirty seconds oh, left. Well, okay, so there we go. Yeah, and and I one thing I want to point out is Sim takes a lot of crap from the public for some of the decisions you make, and if you want to meet with Sim, you have an open office policy every Friday. Every Friday uh, for twenty two years, I've done it. You can come down and talk to me about anything and everything. And as an elected, you sh you should have direct access to me. And I make myself available to you. If you want to yell at me, that's your right. It's your right and it's my privilege. So you're, this has been a great discussion. And right. I appreciate everybody who's watching and listening. A reminder again that you can hear us every Sunday and morning, Saturday and Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on KKAT 860 a.m. in Salt Lake City. And for those of you around the world and around the state, Thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.